This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Hey guys, this is Toby Mathis, and you're listening to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast. Today I have John Anderson on. He's actually an attorney at Anderson, but uh, <laughs> John Anderson and Anderson, uh, but he focuses specifically into the trust area and has a long history in that in, in, in that area of the law. And I just thought you guys would really appreciate uh, having uh, him explain these things as much as I appreciate him ha- explaining these things. So first off, good you know, welcome and, and glad to have you with us, John. Thank you. Just dive right on in. Can you give me a little background on you, where you grew up, how you got into law, all that fun stuff? So I grew up all over, wasn't any particular place. So Texas, South Dakota, Utah, Arizona, Oregon. Military yeah. or something? Or what was no, that? No, my dad was a, a professor. <laughs> so, and uh, my dad's a professor of information systems, taught me how to code and stuff when I was a kid. So I hated it, decided to rebel. <laughs> And became a lawyer instead. So you went from coding to, to lawyering. Yeah, that's pretty a, much kissing cousins right there. Right? It's surprisingly how how much of an intersection they have with the logic and and formulas and things like that. That is true, actually. Uh, so 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 you're so you're moving all over. I I, I jumped into your story because I was just so curious. So you moved all over, and then how did you end up in the law? So I actually was going to college, majoring in history. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I had a sister who ended up becoming a lawyer. I thought, ah, I could do that. And uh, so I decided right. to go to law school. Before I went to law school, I actually started working with a, a law firm that specialized in asset protection and estate planning. Mm-hmm. And so I got a lot of interest in that even before law school. And then when I went to law school, took a lot of courses in that and then ended up going back to that firm to work after law, uh, finishing law school. And is that what you do day in and day out is, is is you work specifically in the estate planning side, right? Correct. How do you like yeah. it? You know, it's good. <laughs> you get all sorts of interesting stories when you're when you're working in estate planning because you know, I need to know personal details, I need to know family dynamics, you know, what are your kids like? And so it can get very interesting as far as the stories that I get told uh, dealing with those situations. So without violating any attorney-client relationships or anything like, like, what are the stories that you've seen that that left a mark, so to speak? Like, like, do you have any that just stand out as like, oh my god, this was a crazy situation? Yeah. So I had one time where a client called in was complaining about their brother who was a trustee of the estate and talking about how he was uh, withholding assets from them. Come to find out that the asset that was being withheld was a garbage can. They really wanted that garbage can and they were supposed to get it under the trust, but the the brother was being a pain and wasn't giving them that garbage can. A garbage can. Yeah. Like like put it out by the curb. Was it was it you gotta understand it was it's a stainless steel garbage can. Mm -hmm. It had you know a little pedal where you pushed on the pedal and the lid flipped straight up. I mean it was it was basically like a DeLorean. Mm-hmm. Only, I mean, it couldn't travel through time, but it was that garbage can that they had to have. Oh my God. And they were like, let's force the distribution. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, so you get, get crazy stories like that all the time. What about court? Have you ever had any just stuff where you're you're involved on a probate or something? And we'll get into what all these things are, guys. We'll dive into it. But like, anything that, that stuck out as being like, 
Oh my God. I cannot believe I'm witnessing this. Most of my job is one to try and get people to avoid probate. But in the few cases where I have had situations that did have to go to probate, I had one where a friend, her, her father passed away and he qualified for a simple probate. So it, it was supposed to be fairly easy. And she went to the court to, to see if they had any forms that she could follow to use to just file it on her own. She was trying to do it without a lawyer. And uh, they handed her a stack of papers about that thick and said, here you go, just fill this out and, and it'll, it'll be good. And she started trying to fill it out. And there's just blanks. There's no like information about what's supposed to go in the blank or how it's supposed to read. And she just got super frustrated with it, even though this was supposed to be a simplified probate. And she ended up having to actually come to me and I actually fill out the forms for her so she could actually submit the documents and get the probate going. All right. So you, you mentioned probate. This would be a good segue into actually talking about what some of these terms mean. So I have a few little questions for you, John. What is probate and why should somebody even care about it? Why would you want to avoid it? So probate, as you love Latin, is just means proof. So what you're doing is it, it all comes down to a signature, right? If I own a piece of property and I want to sell that property, I have to sign my name in order to sell that property and transfer it. If I'm dead, I can't sign. And so what probate is, is it's a court process where the court is authorizing someone else, the personal representative, to be able to sign on behalf of the, de the deceased person. But through that process, there's a lot of steps involved. So you got to go into the court, you got to you know, if there's a will, you got to present the will. If there's no will, you have to go through some extra steps to get someone appointed as that personal representative. And then the court verifies all sorts of different information, wants inventory of assets, wants to make sure that there's no creditors. You have to do publications to try and root out any creditors. And it just takes a lot of time and usually requires an attorney to do it because there's certain language that the court wants to see in the filings. But you hear lawyers say, it's a simple process. Oh, it's not that difficult. Is that it's, true or is that? Well, <laughs> there is that term simple probate, but it's not as simple as if you use a trust. So it's like it, simply going down to the DMV. Right? Yeah. Cause your, your assets get locked down during that probate and it can take several months. Even within my own family, uh, we had a, a situation where the father passed away. It was a young family, young kids, and everything was titled under his name. Mm -hmm. And they, the, the widow had no access to any of their assets. The only reason why she was able to get money was through the mortician. What the, the mortician could make a claim on the bank account for his services mm -hmm. and get paid directly. And so what he did was he charged a higher fee than what he normally charges to that account. And then he took that money and gave it to the widow so that they could have money until the probate could get through and actually get the assets. So probate, you're dealing with the court. Is there Are there procedures? Uh, I mean, I, I actually know, but somebody may not know out there, but are there procedures for a surviving spouse, for example, to get access to some of the monies or is it always going to be through the court? If they have their name on the account, they should be able to get access to it. But if they don't have their name on the account, then no, they've got to go through the court. They can do an emergency filings um, to get access to it, but even that can take some time. And so it's it's locked down unless the court says, okay, you can get access to it. 
you're dealing with the court. And I, I guess the way I've always looked at it is I, I try not to have people deal with the court because the court's idea of something happening quickly might be six months to a year. Something that's the ordinary course might be two years to four years as a typical case, right? Correct. I mean, and then you've got the the more extreme examples like Howard Hughes, who who died in 1976. His probate was closed in 2010. So 34 years. 34 uh, years of probate. In probate. Right. An entire generation of attorneys mm-hmm. made their living just off of that probate. And could he have avoided it? Yep. Like, let's be real. <laughs> Is it, this is what always people get frustrated about, especially those of us who are in this area, and especially you, I imagine. Can, you can literally just draft around this and avoid the whole process, can't you? Correct. If you use a living trust, you can avoid the whole probate process. One thing I often see that maybe some attorneys push is they they tell clients that they're going to get a trust, but what they actually draft for them is a will that creates a trust upon their death. Michael Jackson. Test- yeah, it's a testamentary Michael trust. Jackson's. Michael Jackson did this. And so the estate still has to go through probate because the will always has to go through probate, and then it creates a trust upon their death. But you can avoid all of that just by creating a living trust while you're alive, transferring assets into it, and then you don't have to go through probate. Oh my gosh. So how does the trust specifically avoid probate? Like, is it just like, hey, I just sprinkle some trust on this and magically I don't have to probate? Or what? what is, how does a trust avoid probate? So it avoids probate by actually owning the assets. You have to do what's called fund the trust. Because we talked about how the probate is all about the signature. And so instead of having me on that title or that own that property on the deed, I'm going to put the trust on there as the owner. I still control it as trustee of the trust. I'm the beneficiary of the trust. Basically nothing changes as far as how I use the asset, but my name isn't the name on there for the signature. I'm just the trustee. And a trust can name a successor trustee who automatically steps in when I die and they can now sign for that property without going through probate. You don't have to go through the courts. There's just an automatic process. And so we get around that signature requirement because the trustee is signing, not you personally. And so instead of having to go to a courthouse and say, hey, your honor, please appoint so-and-so to to act on behalf of the estate, or hey, please sign this document to transfer it. It's already in trust, and all we're dealing with is now what a, is it a, a written document? Is it a is it something where I still have to go to court, or is this something that can be handled completely privately? So it's a written document. It's handled completely privately. Sometimes there are times where you may want to go through probate, but it's fairly limited. But you can you can manage things within the family fairly simply. Most most trusts, as long as we don't have to deal with like minors, if we're just doing immediate distributions, mm-hmm. two to three months at most. Are there is is it really just a will or a trust, or are there other methods that you can use to avoid probate as well? There are other methods that you can use. Uh, you can use beneficiary designations on assets. So, like with a bank account, you can set up a, a payable on death or a transfer on death that says, "When I pass away, this account automatically goes to," and you're going to name the individual or individuals that you want it to go to. Isn't that similar to a trust, though? Like it's it's a written document that says, "If something happens to me, here's who steps in and and, and is it is a successor." It's similar, but it is not the same. the The situation that I run into that shows that maybe this isn't the best option is where a family they they wanted to avoid probate, but they didn't want to 
incur the expenses of setting up a trust. They're actually not that expensive, but they were cheap. And they just named the kids as the beneficiaries on the bank accounts. You can do it on a deed. You can do it uh, you know, on various different assets. And so they had beneficiary designations on all their assets. It avoided probate. And the kids got all their, their cash. They got the assets. The problem is after someone passes away, there's usually debts and taxes that need to be paid. And with a trust, you have a centralized management through the trustee who's responsible for taking care of those expenses before making distributions. In this situation, there was no centralized management. Each of the kids got their share, and each of them was like, I'm not going to give my share to pay these taxes or to pay off these debts. And they didn't do anything. And so the IRS, being the IRS, you know, they may take a few years, but eventually they came back and went after the estate for the, the taxes that were owed. And by that time, the fees and the interest and everything had accumulated. And they just went after every single one of these kids and took everything. So it, did the kids end up losing what they'd received or a chunk Pretty of much. it? Yeah, they lost the majority of it. Jiminy Christmas. So you're still going to say, have it a, 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 an individual, and it could be uh, does it have to be like one of the beneficiaries or could a could you have a trustee who's third party, unrelated third party, fiduciary, lawyer, accountant, bank company? Like, does it, does it have to be somebody who's interested or can it be somebody who's completely unrelated? So it can be someone who is interested. So depending on the circumstances, if your kids are older, you're just making immediate distributions. You don't care. It usually works best just to have that family member as the trustee. In situations where you maybe want a drawn out distribution, it's usually better to have that third party trustee, especially if you're drawing it out to when the kids are older, because the situations I've run into where you have one kid as the the trustee, but they're supposed to hold the money for a period of time for the other kids and their adults as well. It just is a recipe for disaster. You know, the kids are upset. They can't get their money. And the other kids telling them, I mean, when your kids are little, I've, I've got a bunch of kids and you put one kid in charge who's older, the other kids are going to rebel every single time. And so the same thing happens uh, after someone passes away. If they name one kid in charge and they're supposed to be holding the money for the other kids. The other kids are going to rebel. So what do you do? What would you do in a circumstance? Would you tell them to get a third party? I would tell them to get a third party. So there's professional trustee services, attorneys, accountants, most banks have a trust department that can act as trustee. Those are actually usually better than most attorneys or accountants. Uh, and they actually charge less fees a lot of times. And so what if you have a buddy who's a who's who's really close to the family who's willing to do it? Would you would you would you ever name somebody that is a friend of the family or another relative, an uncle, something like that? As long as they are okay with being yelled at, screamed at by the kids, sure. <laughs> but because everybody yeah. wants the money. Yeah, everybody wants the money. They're gonna get pressure. And so every time I've ever dealt with like a, a dynasty trust that's going to last for multiple generations and they na- and I see that the kids are named, I know within one to two generations, that trust is gone. You need to have a professional. And what would you say to somebody who's like, what, uh, what if the bank just steals the money? Well, that's why they're licensed and bonded. So if the bank tries to steal your money, there are bonds in place to be able to pay you back. Plus, if you look at the, especially the large banks, they've been around for a long time and they're probably going to be around for a long time. So there's not really that interest to try and steal your your money. 
there's also state laws about what they can invest in and they're keeping you from yeah. doing anything too crazy. But uh, yeah, we have a few attorneys that came from some of those big banks that dealt with it. And I think they would say too is, yeah, you get yelled at by beneficiaries because they're demanding their payment. It's not in their best interest. It's almost like a drug addict. Yeah. They're screaming, you need to give me money. You need to give me money. And sometimes the best answer, the loving answer is no, not in your best interest. Yeah. And those professional trustees, that's their job. So they'll, they'll sit on the phone, let them yell at them and then just say, oh, well, that's not what your parents wanted. This -hmm. is what your parents wanted. And this is what I'm going to do. And their, their duty is to the trust itself. This is common. What about the lawyer that says trusts are for the wealthy? So you have a young couple comes in and says, hey, I heard this John Anderson guy talking about how you really should have a trust, that here's here's some scenarios where it benefits, and we don't want to force everybody to go through probate if something happens to us. You know, we have some young children, and the, and the, and the lawyer says, oh, you just need a simple will. It's so much easier. Uh, or you're not, your estate's not big enough. We'll, we'll worry about that later when you've, when you've built up an estate. What, what, what do you say to those folks? What do you say to that attorney, too? I would say, you know, if if you have younger kids, do you really want them to go through that process? I mean, right now, Anne Hesh, if you look at her estate right now, it wasn't actually worth that much. They estimated about $500,000. She wasn't actually worth that much money, surprisingly. And right now they're going through the legal fight and she has a minor son and the, the boyfriend who's the father of that. And she has an adult son from a different relationship and they're they're going at it in in court. And this this minor child is getting dragged through all of that because she didn't do any of that kind of planning. Whereas if she would have had a trust in place, you know, named who's going to be in charge, this is how it's going to look. This all could have been avoided, and the family wouldn't have to be dragged through this. Even though it wasn't that big of an estate, they're still fighting over it. And you're trying to alleviate, like if she'd had a a, a living trust, this would not be in a courtroom, right? This would all be private. Correct. And we'd avoid all that nastiness. You'd actually have, here's the person who's in charge and their way, their highway, right? Correct. Yeah. Because most trusts, at least the ones that we draft, have what's called a no contest clause, where if someone contests what's in the trust and says, no, I don't think this is correct, they actually get disinherited. So there's that incentive for them to not actually try and force or challenge the trust, especially if they're a potential beneficiary within the trust. What do you say to the lawyer then that's doing this? Because because we all see them. I've been seeing it for 25 years and it's been driving me crazy. And I, I deal with it all the time. I, I go out and I'll talk to a group and I'll say, how many guys were told from an attorney that you just weren't worth that much? It's, a, it's what we call a loss leader. They'll usually charge a very minimal amount to do the will, knowing that later on, you've got to come back to them for the probate work. And they're going to be able to charge and collect a much higher fee from your estate because you didn't do a trust. So a trust is usually, it's a little bit more upfront, but it saves a lot of money on the back end. Do you know or have a a rule of thumb of what it costs to go through probate? So it depends on the estate. Some states have a set amount that you can charge or a percentage of the estate, but typically it's a minimum of five to $10,000. What about the states like like California? What do they have statutory amount where it's like? Yeah, they have a statutory amount where it's based off of the size of the estate. You know so where it starts and more like what's typical. Uh, for California, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I looked at this a few years ago, but I can't remember the numbers exactly. I, I think, think it, I think it started about 
3,000 for like even a small, like all you've got is a piece of real estate. I know um, they have a percentage for the personal yeah. revenue and a percentage for the attorney. And I think it's 4% each, then it scales down depending on how big the estate is. But I know that ARP did a study and they were, they were around 20% of a small estate. And that's to probate completely with the appraiser, with, with you know, somebody who does the inventory. And it may sound like a lot, but you were talking about a small estate, maybe a hundred thousand. So you're probably looking somewhere in the twenty thousand dollar range, soup the nuts, if you're going to go through a full on probate process. I'm just wondering how accurate that would be, or whether you think it might be higher, lower, sideways. They also said eighteen months was the average. I think for a complex probate, that's probably about right. Some yeah. states you have the simplified probate process, so those are usually a bit lower than that. Now I mean, you're still looking at five to ten. Five to ten thousand, and what would it be? You know, is a is a trust more than that, less than that, somewhere in that range? So, for a trust, um, you know, your upfront costs we charge three thousand for one. After that, you might need to get an appraiser. Depending on the size of the estate, you might need to get an appraiser. You might not, and other professional fees. You might need to file a pay a CPA to file a tax return. That's about it. So, two thousand maybe, and that's pretty high. Now, you had mentioned something about a dynasty trust. And I mean, that's essentially a living trust that lasts a long time. Is that a fair statement? Or do you look at a dynasty trust as being a completely different animal? So, yeah, it's a trust that continues on for multiple generations. Instead of distributing out the principal, you're actually retaining the principal and trust under the control of the trustee. And then you distribute out typically just income or a percentage of the income. When do you think that's appropriate, by the way? Like I'm just asking you personally, what 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 do you, when do you think it's appropriate to do multiple generations? So I look at it more on the side of what you would consider like a risk curve. Mm-hmm. So you know, your typical risk curve, if you've got low risk, you're typically going to have a potential low rate of return. Your high risk has a much higher potential rate of return. When you're dealing with a dynasty trust, you're going to be expecting a very low rate of return just because of the fiduciary standards um, and state laws that, that control that. So you're not going to get a great rate of return, but you're not going to lose the money. So your principal is going to be protected in the trust. Whereas if you want to do more just like immediate distributions or, or quicker distributions, the potential rate of return is much higher because the kids can go out and invest it and use it much easier, but there's also that chance they're going to blow it. So if you're the type of person who just doesn't like risk, then I would say a dynasty trust may be something you would want to look into. If you're someone who's a little bit more risky and you like to go after those higher rate of returns, then maybe don't consider a dynasty trust and do more of immediate kind of distributions to the beneficiaries. What if you're worried about the decision-making capacity of your children? So like maybe you have a son who's married to a spouse that you just don't like, you don't trust, you're not too happy with, or maybe you have a child who has substance abuse issues, or they just, they're really crappy with money. Is this a way to protect them from themselves? It is. So yeah, if you have a child who has substance abuse issues, then we can protect the the assets within the trust from the decision-making of that beneficiary and also not enable their behaviors. So you can retain the assets in trust and then have it skip or, or go to the next generation. And then we can kind of assess it at that point and see what are the beneficiaries like at that time. Now, what about, uh, we're talking a lot about if somebody passing, but what's the difference between doing like a living trust 
or things that happen during your lifetime. Like what if I, my father had Alzheimer's, so I'm very sensitive to this. What if you have dementia? What if you have Alzheimer's? What if you get hit by a car and you're not able to act on your rehab? Does the living trust help during your lifetime as well? It does because you're the trustee of your trust typically when you set it up. If you become incapacitated, then the trust will have provisions that allow for someone else to then step in as trustee. You're still the beneficiary, so they have to use the assets for your benefit. But we don't have to go through like a conservatorship or a guardianship in order to have the court appoint someone. So you don't have to be Britney Spears. Britney Spears has set this up. She could have avoided that whole situation. Also, when we do a trust, we also do a a durable power of attorney. So we're going to name someone who can take care of financial matters that may not be in the trust if you become incapacitated. And we do a healthcare power of attorney so that there can be someone who can be appointed to take care of you medically if you are incapacitated and avoid a a guardianship uh, in court. And does a will do any of that? No, a will will not avoid any of that. A will only has power in probate court after you pass away. Yep. It requires you to pass away before you know whether you did it right, right? (laughs) Yeah. Do you still do a will even if you do a living trust? Yes, we always do a will. It's what's called a pour over will. All it does is it says any assets that didn't get transferred into the trust while I live while I was alive, go into the trust when I die. Now, we don't want to have to use that pour over will if we don't have to, but there are circumstances where you actually do use that pour over will. I had a situation where older guy was going on a date with an older lady, got in a car accident, and they both passed away. Now, there's continuing liability from that accident that may go with him mm-hmm. or go to his estate. So we actually took, even though he had a trust, we took part of the assets and we took them through that probate process. It was just like a bank account. It wasn't all the assets. Because but she what that have, does because she would have a claim against the estate, is that's what's going on? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Because she would have a claim against the estate. It, we had that pour over will in place so we could use that and say, once this pro the, the asset's just going to go into the trust. But once that probate was closed, all future claims were closed off against the estate. And so it was just a way of protecting the estate against the future claims uh, from that accident. Fantastic. So it's a portable will that grabs anything that's not in the trust. Because a lot of people are going to be scared of a trust. They're going to say it's complex. The attorney is going to say, oh, they're more expensive and they're complex and you have to fund them and all this stuff. That's a stopgap to say, hey, you know what? If you screw it up, if you did everything wrong, it's still going into the trust. It's still going to be private. And I guess I should say that. Does a living trust ever get filed in court where everybody can see who's getting what? Or does it always remain private? So... It almost always remains private unless there are some kind of con- uh, a contest, someone challenges the trust, then that trust may need to be filed in the court. But even then, you don't have to file the whole thing. You may just have to file certain sections of what's being disputed. So typically, it's all done privately. We, we just saw that actually in, in Kobe Bryant's case, where I, I believe that he had a situation where he left a daughter out of a document. Usually when we draft, we say descendants instead of naming out all the kids. So if you have more kids, you don't have to go redo it. But in his situation, I think he named the kids and that I remember seeing the court filing, the trust was under seal with the with the court, but they were able to go through and, and, and make the modification to add the, the, the child that was left out. Here's another one. Uh, in a past life, John, I was a, a, a court appointed guardian under certain circumstances. And I was a court appointed uh, representative for a, a gal that was indigent for 11 years. And during that 11 years, 
I had phone calls with doctors uh, who wanted to uh, end life-saving measures. Uh, she was uh, she was in a hospital on, on three different occasions. When I took on representation, she had said, don't let anybody kill me. They're all going to want to kill me. Like She was a little bit bonkers um, at the time. She was a very interesting character, a wonderful lady, but she was just deathly afraid that uh, because she did not have monies, that uh, her life was worth less and that there was going to be a situation. And I can tell you, this is what's interesting. On three different occasions, there was, I had conversations with doctors where I refused to withhold life-saving measures. And because I had a written directive from her to continue extraordinary measures, no matter what, Hey, don't let them uh, terminate my life. I want to use whatever measures are available to me to preserve life. And under all three of those, she made complete recoveries. I only say that not to tick off all the doctors out there, but because somebody may say, I want to make sure I have a representative uh, and maybe I want the plug pulled. Let's say you have a family and you're, you're, you're brain dead and you don't want to be kept on life saving measures for months and months charged against your estate, which is, you know, hundred thousand dollars a day or whatever it is. And it could deplete your estate. Maybe you want to have the, give somebody the power to pull that plug, but maybe you also want to have somebody who's able to have a conversation and, and preserve your life. Is that something that's also in a living trust? And if so, is it also in a will? So it's not necessarily in the living trust itself, but when we prepare a trust, we always include so what's called a living will, or sometimes it's called an advanced healthcare directive or directive to physicians. It depends on what state you're in, uh, but it allows you to give direction to the doctors on what type of care you would like to receive if you're unable to, to make that decision on your own. And so there was a situation that I saw where the father, he was he was basically brain dead and they wanted to wait for the entire family to all get there to say their goodbyes and then they were going to pull the plug. Mm-hmm. And the problem was there was a lot of kids and it took a long time for everybody to get together. And by the time they pulled the plug, he had stabilized. And so he was actually a vegetable, but in a stable condition for many years after that. Mm-hmm. And required constant care and basically depleted the estate. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they had, if he had a document that said, no, I'll just pull the plug on me and just let me die, that whole situation could have been avoided. Oh, wow. Did the hospital preserve it or did they have somebody that they spoke to that, that, that enabled, that was the reason why they continued? So the, the family, well, a hospital is going to preserve your life as much yep. as possible unless. There is a directive from either a person appointed by you under a medical power of attorney or a living will that directs them to disconnect you. And, and I guess the, without getting too far into the weeds, does a will cover that? No. Yeah. So I, I guess the, the, the reason I ask all these questions is because there's a misconception that we're talking about apples to apples, when in all reality, we're talking apples to oranges. Either you have an estate plan or you don't. And when, when I like, give me your thoughts on this, but when I hear somebody say, well, should I have a living trust or a will? How do you usually react to that? Do you, do you, do you try to do an education or do you just say they're two different animals? What, what, how, how do you respond? So I usually try and understand the circumstances that the, the person is in, but probably 90% of the time I'm going to direct them to a living trust. There are a few circumstances where a will would work just fine or, or beneficiary designations. Usually is the other direction. I may steer someone if they just don't have anything. But 90, 95% of the time, I'm going to end up recommending a, a living trust. I'll let them know why that is. So like, if you own any real estate, the answer is just going to straight up be 
living trust. <laughs> doesn't doesn't matter how much it's worth. If you have real estate, that automatically kicks you into probate. It's going to create a mess. You might as well have a living trust. What if I'm in California and I own another piece of property, let's say in Hawaii, and maybe I have one in Las Vegas. I'm doing pretty well, or I have some vacation properties there or something. Are you probating in all three jurisdictions if I have a will? Uh, and is it the same if I have a trust? So if you have a will, yes, you are opening a probate. Uh, they're called ancillary probate. So you'll, you'll have a primary probate in the state usually where you live. And then any assets you have in other states requires an ancillary probate to then be opened within that state to handle the uh, just those assets. With a living trust, on the other hand, because you're not going through probate and things are just being taken care of by the, the trustee, there is no ancillary process. Your trustee is just taking control of it uh, and administering your estate privately. So the living trust, I'm not having to run to each jurisdiction and probate it. I'm able to do that privately. Is that, is, is that the right takeaway? Fantastic. Yeah. And you never know what the, because each state may have its own estate tax mm-hmm. and it applies to whatever assets are in that state. So you, if you own property, if you're in Las Vegas, but you own property in Oregon and that property is worth over a million dollars, you're paying an estate tax in Oregon, unless you do some type of extra planning, usually through a trust to avoid that. Wow. So you still can do it. Even you can still try to avoid that. Even, even in the case of Oregon, huh? You can try to get around that. Interesting. So hopefully this is, uh, this is enlightening to me. I always find these conversations interesting. Uh, and hopefully it's enlightening to you. Uh, John, this is going to be the cheesy question of the day, but if if you were going back and you were talking to young John, maybe somebody who was in high school or whatnot, what kind of advice would you be giving them? If Again, if you're able to, let's say it's 16-year-old John and you're able to talk to 16-year-old John now, what would you say? Buy some Bitcoins. Um, no. um, <laughs> one thing that got me into estate planning was I actually received an inheritance when I was about 21. It wasn't a lot. It was something. And it was it was about enough to buy a car. <laughs> so it, it wasn't a ton of money, but I took that money and I invested it. And so one thing, uh, and, and it's grown about 20 times since, and it's been about 15 years since I was, yeah, about 15 years since I received that. And so, you know, you, you want to be smart with your money. And one thing I would consider is, you know, give your kids something, but also if you're older, your kids are older, maybe give something to your grandkids too. Let them have something. Let them play around with it. Let them try. Are they going to blow it? Probably. I mean, I have a brother that got the same inheritance as I did and it was gone in two months, but at least give them a chance to try it out. So Take the training wheels off. Let, let, let them get yeah. a little experience there. Huh? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I really want to thank you for your time. And uh, I think we appreciate the candor and the, the straight answers. Uh, lawyers are sometimes difficult to, <laughs> and you were very, very straightforward. So I really appreciate that. And if somebody's trying to get a hold of you, they want to reach out to you since you're on a podcast, how would they get how would they get a hold of you? The best way to get a hold of me is through our estate planning email. So estate planning at AndersonAdvisors.com. My assistant usually takes care of the emails, but if if you say you're, you're directing it to me, then it'll it'll get directed. Uh, come directly to me. Fantastic. Thanks for joining me today. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. 
be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 